Hi, I'm Douglas Ferguson. Welcome to the Facilitation Lab podcast, where I speak with Voltage Control certification alumni and other facilitation experts about the remarkable impact they're making. We embrace a method agnostic approach so you can enjoy a wide range of topics and perspectives as we examine all the nuances of enabling meaningful group experiences. This series is dedicated to helping you navigate the realities of facilitating collaboration, ensuring every session you lead becomes truly transformative. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to join us for a live session sometime, you can join our Facilitation Lab community. It's an ideal space to apply what you learn in the podcast in real time with peers. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com slash facilitation dash lab. And if you'd like to learn more about our 12-week facilitation certification program, you can read about it at voltagecontrol.com. Today, I'm with Eddie Jimba at Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center where he offers advice to make cities in Africa resilient to climate change, shocks, and stresses. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Thank you very much, Douglas. Very pleased to be here. Oh, it's so great to have you. Well, as usual, let's talk a little bit about how you got your start in this work. I know that you had early ambitions to be a medical doctor, and that formed some of your thinking and some of your uh, choices in your journey. But I'd uh, love to just talk about that with you today. Yeah, well, um, having been raised in a, a family where it was very important or it was, it was known that anyone who is bright or who is able to pass science should automatically sign up to be a medical doctor. It was quite prestigious to be one. Um, I, I had a couple of uncles who had gone ahead of me, so they were medical doctors, um, peers too, who were aspiring to be. And as someone who was performing well in science, everyone expected me to be a medical doctor. And I myself actually wanted to be a medical doctor. Well, because of uh, financial circumstances, I, number one, I, I, uh, yeah, I couldn't afford to pay for the medical um, course in, at the university. And the government sponsored me for an alternative course, which was conservation biology. Well, because it was also science, I, I loved it. I chose to move on with a uh, with conservation biology course. In there, among the many things that we we studied was environmental education. And that caught my attention. And um, I started following it a little bit, I mean, with hesitation, but also with interest. Um, yes, so that became a line uh, that eventually would land me my first job uh, in a local small organization. Um, uh, we were about, what, seven people working for it. And my role there was an environmental educator. Those were the initial steps into the world of facilitation. Mm. And what was it about childhood education that really attracted you? Okay, I naturally, I love children. I do. Anywhere you find me, you'll find children somehow come around me. Uh, I am also, uh, or at least I've been called playful. I now admit I enjoy playing. And uh, in the African culture, 
Um, yeah, playfulness is reserved for children. So I think I often find myself playing with the children. So that's, that's, that's exactly how I gravitated towards children. I loved children. Oh, I was told that my father actually used to love children, that he would have children all around him. Early, early, early in my early childhood, I had that. Um, so probably that too uh, influenced my inclination to children. And how do you think that impacts your work today, this kind of playfulness, this kind of interest in children, this kind of um, affinity to, to think and behave in those ways? Uh-huh. So I remember one day, okay, as, a ch- as an environment educator responsible for you know, teaching children to love nature and conservation in general, one day, I we received in my local organization we received an invitation to go for games, uh, games for climate. My manager at the time, she she basically frowned at the invitation. She was wondering who uh, on earth does playfulness instead of doing serious business anyway. That was the first time I think I got exposed to playfulness in a professional sense. Mm. Now, coming back here, I realized that actually my facilitation style edges around seriousness and playfulness and a little bit of comedy and storytelling. So, the the interaction with children and the love for playfulness, I have learned to bring it into a room where there's uh, whether it's a meeting, a smaller one, big conferences, um, and I find that people connect. Actually, it's my way of connecting with the audience before we get into, you know, this too much business of life uh, with whatever topics that we are addressing. So I'm really curious, like, what's, um, you talk about bringing in the play and the comedy and connecting with the audience. Is there a story that comes to mind of, of how that happens? Hmm. Well, uh, I'm trying to dig into my mind what the immediate thing that comes is, you know, imagine myself, I, I, in my work, I tend to uh, move around the cities, especially in Africa. And one of the most memorable time that I have is when I was in uh, Windhoek in Namibia in a, a huge conference hall um, in there, you know, with politicians, you know, the mayor is present, the councillor is present there, uh, technical people from disaster risk management, uh, because of the work we do, which is humanitarian um, work, we always want to bring along local people, so the common man the and, and woman, um, community members, basically. And you know, we were thinking about the strategy, the climate change strategy for the city of Windhoek. Now, getting the mayor, 
it's not time for, for soliciting for votes, you know, getting the mayor to talk with the uh, local community leaders and just a local um, dweller of uh, informal settlements, as we call them. It's when it's, yeah, it's challenging. So I often start with some very light joke, maybe, um, very carefully selected, uh, which makes people, you know, loosen up and laugh a bit. Um, so, for example, we are here to talk about the changing climate, but is it really changing? Has anyone seen it changing or something related to uh, an African proverb? Or So I find a way of finding touch points with my audience that is not entirely um, scientific or it's not entirely, how do I say that? Yeah, but anyway, something light that makes people's continents on the face change. They are not thinking about their professionalism in the moment, but they are thinking about being human together in the room. Mm, I love that. And what are some African proverbs that come to mind? Like, because I'm sure listeners aren't familiar with many of them. So, like, is there one that uh, that you can share with us? The the, the kinds of things that you're using. Yeah, one. There's one which says, "If you want to carry a baby, don't wait for them when to get dirty or to get muddy." And in a way, that one directly relates to my work because, you know, for the changing climate, we need to take action before things get worse. So when I offer that, then I invite my audience to offer me some proverbs from their own context. Um, so, mm. I mean, although we are all Africa, but the countries can be completely different. Even within the country, there can be a lot of difference when because we are different tribes, different culture setting and background. So I invite them to offer me more. And as they do that, um, yeah, they, 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 they feel like this is a different kind of workshop altogether. Wow, that makes me really curious when you say that if you want to carry a baby, don't wait for it to get muddy. In what ways do you think you may have waited for things to get muddy in your facilitation practice before you carried them? Ah, uh, <laughs> okay. I love that question. Um, first and foremost, uh, you know, I never ever thought that facilitation can be work. Uh, I never had that facilitation was, there was a profession called facilitation until I met, uh, people from the Red Cross who had invited me for a workshop which was about climate change and games or games for climate and they they told me that I was good at facilitation and I was I asked you know what what's that by that time I had already been working as an environmental educator for about 3 years I think um so the term facilitation was not there. That means that for those three years, I did things ad hoc without any 
uh, orientation about the basics of facilitation, the techniques of facilitation. In which way, I think that that's clearly I waited. I waited to carry the baby, but I didn't know the baby uh, existed. Uh, so in a way, while I waited to carry the baby, uh, I wasn't aware of the waiting itself. Mm. And later on, actually, I started then, you know, I was taken on um, into, I joined Red Cross. And one of the reasons, you know, they really uh, liked my facilitation skills and they exposed me to various facilitation styles and techniques. And I was like, wow, I never knew that work could be fun like this anyway. And then, um, you know, you know, exposed me also to applied improvisation, liberating structures, all these amazing uh, resources. And over time, I have also learned that, you know, facilitation is kind of a craft. You get this piece and this and put them together and you get a blend. So if I, I get applied improv and then I add some liberating structure, um, yeah, I create this amazing thing. In in my culture, in the African context, there is a, a meal uh, we call katogo. Basically, it's a mixture of, of things. You throw tomatoes there. Uh, you can throw uh, vegetable, other vegetables, leafy vegetables. You can throw um, uh, other various sources of protein and carbs, and you cook all together. So I, that's my new perception of facilitation. Add several things together, come up with a flavor that that is so blended but very rich in taste. Yes, anyway, yeah, right now I'm here. I'm immersed in facilitation. I love facilitation. And I notice though that it's it's still growing in the African context. I'm privileged to to be part of the um, of the community of facilitators from IAF, the International Faci- uh, Association of Facilitation, but we are we are few. Even within the African group, we are few, and we yes, anyway, which means there is a, a lot of room for growth. Given that lots of things are emerging within the African context to provide solutions to, you know, to the changing climate, to the challenges in health, to the tech uh, that is blooming, everything. So I, 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 I tend to feel like there is a need to groom facilitators, to equip facilitators in the developing world. And that's my new passion or my new discovered uh, calling. Tell me a little bit more about that need. Why do you think that's so important? Well, it is it is pretty important because a, I mean, um, as I from my story, facilitation generally was never regarded as some sort of work. So if it's not regarded as work, that means it's not going to be prioritized in an organization. So if someone emerges and they come and they say, yeah, here I am, I need a job, I am a facilitator, a conversation facilitator. They'd be like, what are you talking about? We are here to do work, not to, you know, to talk, not to talk. Um, then when you think in my context, when you think about 
changing climate, the worst, while the worst is yet to be seen all around the world, Africa is in a very difficult place, or it will be in a very difficult place. Um, we are at a time when we need to define policies that will help the most vulnerable people to be protected uh, from uh, adverse impacts of climate change. And to do that, we need to facilitate conversation between the, those who are most vulnerable, the scientists that are informing us, the, uh, the local leaders, especially the cultural leaders who are highly treasured, uh, and then the governments who are decision makers. The women and children, you know, everyone has to be in the table, on the table to make this conversation rich, and so that the outcome is really informed by local experience. We need facilitators to create that room. There are very few. There are very few, and the scientists who are quite enthusiastic, as well as the decision leaders, uh, the decision makers, what they know right now is PowerPoint, one PowerPoint after another, mm. and which is quite boring. But they don't know what to do. How different? What, what other ways can we do it? Can we pass on this information? Any sector that you talk about within Africa, they will need that. They will need facilitators because of you know the growth trajectory that we are looking at and the change that we need to bring about. Yeah. What do you think the most promising source of facilitators are in that space? Hmm. Source of facilitators. I don't know. I don't know where we can, you know, because I don't know where uh, where they are. But I think starting starting with executives, we have leaders all around, uh, leaders in different sectors, leaders of companies, leaders of nonprofits, uh, leaders. And I think because our setting is so much driven by top down, until we touch the leaders uh, to appreciate the value of facilitation, it's unlikely that they'll be able to commit uh, some of their human resources and financial resources to empower their teams be facilitators within the entities, but even between, you know, bridging the, um, um, the gap between their entities and other entities. Uh, here we talk, we keep talking for, for us, the humanitarian um, uh, workers, we keep talking, we need partnerships, we need collaborations, we need, but, but these need to be facilitated. In order to bridge these gaps, we need facilitators on the table equipped with facilitation skills now. When one day when I wanted to, you know, to just sharpen my facilitation skills, you know, trying to get a little bit more, I looked at courses. I feel like the courses offered were quite out of reach in terms of finances. Uh, they are costly, basically. And if they are costly, that becomes a prohibitive factor. 
So level one, we have the executive buying. Level two, it's going to be the financial um, access or block. Uh, so we'll have to overcome the financial challenge for, for more Africans to access like cutting edge facilitation techniques. Now, where I work from, we try to to infuse and empower our own uh, humanitarian workers with facilitation techniques. So we organize either online trainings or in-person trainings to offer that what, what we have learned over time. Um, and of course, you know, we have to continue guiding uh, like the champions and coaching them, mentoring them uh, as they hone their facilitation skills. I think that those are the small baby steps we are taking for us within the Red Cross and the Red Crescent Climate Center, but also for the Red Cross and the Red Crescent movement in general. Mm. Your mention of the Red Cross reminds me of the um, the story you were telling earlier about uh, the climate games and how foreign and strange that was for some of your coworkers. I'm really curious, how did those games work? What was, what was it like being there and attending these programs? Okay, so um, for that particular game that uh, I that oriented me into the world of facilitation, it was about forward-looking. Uh, decision making and um, it's basically like an a tabletop so sort of simulation game with cards and with um, you know beans and uh, dies uh, representing probabilities and repre- uh, the beans representing finances so you have to make an individual decision but with consultation from others so it was a game about forward-looking decision-making into you know ten-year future, and you'd experience the results of your decisions over the course of the game. However, there are other severons which are basically um, small games to infuse some energy within a workshop, within a conference, um, within a meeting. Those ones we we pick them. Uh, from here and there, you know, from all over, and try them out, put them into context, and some fly and others flop, uh, which reminds me. So earlier in my career, having been exposed to these various games at the Climate Center, uh, I got an assignment to go to Somaliland and to play a game. So I had a deck of cards these usual cards, playing cards. But I was going to use them uh, in, you know, to just simulate people's imagination who are not playing cards, actually. But the moment I pulled out a deck of cards and I mentioned this is a deck of cards, my co-facilitator stopped me and said, wait, 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 wait. And here, in this context, we never do gambling. So anything related to gambling, I immediately noticed that, look, while I was not there to gamble, but the cards are related, they are affiliated to gambling, Mm -hmm. this game cannot continue. So 
anyway, we ha- we we try to get games and then we put them into context, into our own context. Um, some, but always trying to make sure that they remain relevant to the goal that we have of reducing, like understanding changing risks and then making decision in the moment which impact the future. Yeah, that's always critical, you know, no matter what we're bringing into a session, just thinking about how can we make it applicable? How can we align it to our context, to our purpose? And, um, you know, when you tell me about the playing cards and, you know, gambling and the connotations there, it also reminds me of how just the importance of clarity Mm -hmm. and facilitation and Mm -hmm. how often cultural boundaries, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I imagine from your perspective, working in a continent that has many countries that are quite diverse. There seems to be a sense of unity around Africa in general, but also there's so much diversity with all these countries and the cultural backgrounds. And and so I can imagine it can be, to your point, like these card decks are problematic because of gambling, but I, I bet there's so many examples of just you know, how the words we use and the, and the metaphors and the symbols we use, we have to be careful about how people respond to those. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and je- yeah, and, and you, you, so they are 52 countries. And then even within the country itself, like one country, like where I am here in Uganda, you know, they are over, they are, they are over 30 dialects, you know, um, and some of which I cannot completely understand. So if I cannot even understand the language or the dialect, that means I, it's a steep, it's a steep, uh, is it called a steep slope? But it takes a lot of effort for me to understand the culture. That's where storytelling and connecting with, you know, people comes in. If, you know, and our culture is so much oriented, by starting a small conversation with a person who, with whom you are convening the meeting or the workshop or the conference, they can reveal to you or they often reveal to me lots of, of things through a story, short stories, long stories, stories in the corridor, stories across the table, stories when we are having lunch uh, and, uh, and, and, and tea. Through these stories, I practice active listening. Like I have to really listen carefully to pick out what are these cultural Markstones that are coming up, that are popping up as this person speaks. And later on, I use them to design or to facilitate the agenda itself that I have at hand. Listening. I was going to ask you about that actually, because you were talking about uh, being intentional about these touch points you create so you can connect with them in a meaningful and personal way. And I was curious about your process for that. And so you touched on it just now. A bit, but I'm really curious to know a little bit more on how that evolves. Is that stuff you're doing? Because you mentioned that it influences how you think about the agenda, so it must be happening before the event. So, how far ahead of time, and are you just getting um, meeting with them in person, or are you doing this virtually? What's your process like for really getting to uh, that clarity that you need to make those epiphanies mm-hmm. to draw them in more? Mm-hmm. So, uh, 
often it involves both online and offline meetings. So the online, you know, to get check in, what, what is it that you really want to achieve with this meeting? And, uh, and then after that, we follow up with another online probably and, and then we get offline where, where possible. Um, in the preparations, that is, if I'm within the country where the uh, workshop is going to happen, sometimes I'm not. But even when I am not, I make sure that I add in a day before to review the agenda that we already uh, discussed online. Mm. And during the process of reviewing it in person, often, you know, things emerge. Also, when I'm beginning to craft an agenda, I often talk to you know, whoever has invited me or whoever I'm co-organizing with, that this is a guide. This is a guide. Um, but because it's a guide, some details can change. Changing in the moment, during the facilitation, or just before, or immediately after reviewing, a, during the time when we are reviewing a session. But look, talking about this process of before, you know, trying to find out information, before the uh, uh, when we are designing the agenda, I had never thought about it so much critically until I had uh, I undertook the course from the voltage control. And when we were doing, you know, we had several books that we used, uh, and. One of my life-changing books as a facilitator was The Gift from the uh, Voltage Control, The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker, who underscores the reason to find out the reason for the meeting by asking so many whys. You know, why, 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 until you get to the, the real desire in my case, often that is, you know, it's usually I, I'm bringing together scientists, I'm bringing together these uh, decision makers uh, from government. And then the scientists, while they say we are here to design something, at the bottom is we, of their hearts is I am here to offer you the information that you need. And therefore, I need a lot of time uh, so that I can go through all my slide decks. Okay. But because of this, you know, learning to ask the why of the meeting, hmm, we have, I have been able to also help the scientists know that, yes, you need to deliver this information, but you also need people to listen to you. Now, my colleague says, do you want people to listen to you 10% and then they lose 90% of your content? Or do you want them to retain 90% of your content and therefore they should not be talked to more than 10% of the time. Okay. So anyway, the, the point is I finally found comfort in asking a lot of why would you like this workshop? Why would you like this meeting? Again and again which and um, especially trying to get to the point of 
Do you like it more interactive or less interactive? And what is the value of having it less interactive versus more interactive? It's always interesting what you learn when you start to dial in. And even to your point around making the agenda ahead of time based on some conversations, but then that day before, really walking it through with them. And it's a great opportunity to build some familiarity with folks and 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 the flow that you plan and, and make changes in the last minute. And I think that demonstrates adaptability and builds a lot of trust and confidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, I've learned to ask, what would you like your participants to see, mm. to feel, to think, to experience? And by asking those questions, it has helped people uh, my co-facilitators or the co-organizers to try to think holistically about the experience of a participant and to craft an agenda that suits the participants and make them feel enthusiastic about the work that we are going to do or about the work that we are already doing. Mm, yeah, I love that. It shows up in the workshop design canvas that we created and how we think about how participants are going to leave and how they're showing up because then that gap can be really visible to us as designers and so we know exactly what we need to address. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, and talking about designing, I discovered that I, I used to think ah, that you know, the designing part of the workshop is daunting. You know, it's a lonely activity. It's a soul-searching activity, so to say. Um, and I would try to quicken it, like do it chap-chap, so that we get to the day of facilitation and delivering. But I have learned that it's worth the effort to do to spend a lot of time in designing phase of the workshop because it will determine a lot how the actual delivering of the workshop, conference, or meeting will happen. So, mm. And if you do it in a co-development process, it yields even much more um, better fruits, um, and the results are well-owned, like co-owned. If something didn't go well, all of you as the facilitation team would be like, yes, we would have improved. And it reduces uh, opportunities of pointing fingers that probably it was you, Eddie, who didn't uh, give sufficient time for for design. Yes. It's easier for people to um, assume positive intent and and think about how we can improve versus trying to cast blame, for sure. Well, let's see. In our remaining time, I want to kind of shift, maybe just reflecting a bit. And uh, my first semi-reflective question here is about uh, the leaders that you mentioned and how important it was to start with the leaders and to build appreciation for facilitation, awareness, and um, maybe even get them trained to be better facilitators so that they can influence the organizations that they're a part of. And I'm curious, what do you think are the hallmarks of leaders that are going to be the most receptive to facilitation or ones that might be more apt to embrace it, learn it, and adopt it? Okay, in terms of embracing and learning, I think of the mid-level managers, I, I think about them as the movers, you know? 
the senior managers, I think about them as those who just offer a blessing. They need to experience it once and be like, yeah, go, no, go. Um, once they have given a go, then the mid-level managers, these make it happen. And I love, so in our facilitation uh, trainings for leaders, usually we, we, we want the senior management to identify a person and they hand them over to us. And usually that is a person who is in the mid-level management that, you know, we offer the different facilitation techniques, expose the, uh, them to various methods, and then guide them going forward. Now, though, once we have guided the mid-level managers, then they are enthusiastic also to guide even the lower, you know, management levels. So I, I feel like the movers are the mid-level managers. But mm -hmm. of course, they have to first get the goal uh, from the senior level management. And what do you think are the qualities of the senior leaders that are the most apt to give the go-ahead? And to Who are the people that are pretty much ready but maybe just aren't aware just yet? That, that's a difficult one too to answer. Mm. But who are the most ready? I don't know. It's hard to find the most ready ones. Yeah, maybe not a specific person or a specific industry, but what are the qualities? What do you think is um, true about those people? Okay. There, there have to be some people who, who are enthusiastic about their work and about change, sustainable change. Now, the word sustainability, I think sometimes it's misused, but a leader who would love to see change um, and impact for the kind of work that they do, they are likely to embrace facilitation because they'll be able to see its capacity to drive change. And for the leaders who are not enthusiastic, it's less likely. But also leaders who are probably young and energetic, you know, they and young is relative, but those who are enthusiastic to learn new things, probably that's the, mm. the quality that I want to put forward. They are the, the, they are the ones that are likely to appreciate facilitation and hopefully um, encourage their teams to have these facilitation skills. I also tend to think it's not good to have, you know, this single person in an organization as our go-to facilitator rather than, you know, everyone should have some, some level of facilitation because we are facilitating day in and day out. The, the scale differs, but we are. Yeah, it makes a big difference when even folks that aren't positional leaders or aren't hosting meetings if they're showing up with an understanding and an appreciation of good facilitation skills, they're going to be better meeting attendants. Mm -hmm, they're, going to, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're going to help out and bring more people in. And the success of the gathering just skyrockets, right? I mean, imagine if every wedding you went to was attended by wedding planners. You know, It would probably be a pretty spectacular <laughs> event, right? There would be a lot of sympathy and empathy for what everyone's going through, right? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, these need for that diversity 
diversifying facilitation. How do you think that facilitation will continue to shape the future of climate? Ah, great, 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 great question. Look, I think actually it's going to be very, very important. Number one, uh, probably you, I mean, if you do a Google search immediately, you'll, uh, you'll find lots of meetings about climate, lots of workshops and even mega conferences um, that happen, like the one that we call the Conference of Parties, where big decisions happen. When these meetings are not well facilitated, there is passivity. Passiveness in the attendancy, passiveness in contributing um, great ideas, passiveness in owning the outcome. Now, I think we are going to need, and my hope is that we will have lots of skilled and even semi-skilled facilitators having these um, very interactive, highly engaging uh, meetings starting from the lowest level of administration. In my case, it will be the village to the highest level of administration, which would be at the global level. Getting the voices of those who are most impacted heard, but also getting the voices of those who are best skilled at producing solutions um, equally hard in the same room. Mm to define the solution for climate. And when it comes to cities, it is even going to be more important. You know, the world is becoming urbanized day by day. We have already gone past the 50%, you know, of the world's population living in cities. And it's expected, you know, it's going to rise into 80s. Some other places like the... um, the Latin America and the Caribbean, those have already also got there. But anyway, wherever we have a lot of diversity concentrated in the single place and we need to make a decision or to come up with solutions that are co-owned, which is the case for the climate change, we need facilitation. We need excellent facilitation. That is, that is the force that will ensure adequate inclusion of older voices and which means acceptable solutions for those who are there. Yeah, I, I, I think that we will come to a place where we have even climate change specialists having facilitation as one of their job descriptions, I think. Mm. Yes. As we come to an end here, I'd love to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought. Mm. One, facilitation is not designed, like it's a skill which can be learned. So it's not only for extroverts, it's not only for introverts. Anyone can be a facilitator. But it is an art, and which means we have to be intentional as facilitators getting various facilitation techniques, crafting them together to, to come up with you know, f- unique facilitation styles, which are also um, applicable 
for specific cultural contexts. The other one is we need to, to spread facilitation as a profession, especially within developing countries, uh, both in Africa, uh, in Asia, and elsewhere. I, I feel like there is a big gap in terms of facilitation skills in the developing world. Mm. And one, there has to be awareness and appreciation that it's needed, both by leaders, but uh, everyone as well. And then two, to make it accessible, um, especially to remove the financial barriers that makes people are not able to access facilitation skills offered in conferences, in trainings, um, elsewhere. And yeah, I think lastly, it's so rewarding uh, to facilitate a productive conversation. Eddie, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Douglas. Thanks for hosting me. Um, and yes, I look forward to seeing the banner of facilitation moving all around. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Facilitation Lab podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe and receive updates when new episodes are released. We love listener tales and invite you to share your facilitation stories. Send them to us on LinkedIn or via email. If you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about facilitation, team dynamics, and collaboration. VoltageControl.com.